Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The GameStop saga has roused fury from retail investors, hedge funds, and politicians of all stripes. But is the fury a sign of a bug in the financial system? Or is it a new feature? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long. And also on today's show, hot property. The biggest housing market in the world, China's, is on fire. How long can this boom hold? And ask anyone and they'll tell you investing in property is, well, as safe as houses. But our Buttonwood columnist shares some hard truths about putting your money in bricks and mortar. But first, it's been a roller coaster week for the markets. Robin Hood, an online stockbroker, was forced to curb some trades after angry retail investors drove up the price of GameStop, a video games retailer heavily shorted by hedge funds. We had to make a very difficult decision. It's been uh, it's been a challenging day. One of Robin Hood's founders, Vladimir Tenev, explained on CNBC that the broker was struggling to comply with capital requirements demanded by the frenzied trading. In order to protect the firm and protect our customers, um, we had to limit buying. Politicians on both sides of the aisle were quick to condemn the action. A rare moment of unity between the likes of Conservative Republican Ted Cruz and left-wing Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. This is why this is starting to attract the attention of regulators, members of Congress, etc. On Monday, the company tapped its shareholders for $2.4 billion, on top of another billion it had to raise last week. Meanwhile, the online mob has moved on to silver, sending its price to an eight-year high. But where some claim to have found a cheat code to the stock markets, other see signs of a deeper transformation at work in the financial system. There are two ways to put what's happened with GameStop share prices and now the share prices of other unloved companies and other assets into context. Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. One is to think about them as potentially part of a sort of frothy, bubbly stock market. And it is true that asset prices have inflated, um, in particular, probably thanks to the fall in interest rates that we've seen that have pushed up valuations of assets. But my sense is that there are much larger forces at work here. And you have to think about GameStop in a sort of even bigger narrative that reflects a lot of the technological changes that have happened to markets, the equity market in particular over the past decade or two, that have put more power in the hands of retail investors. Um, And that indicates that it's not just a brief mania, but there's much more to come. The inevitable impact of technological change is sort of deep and structural, and it's not just going to affect the stock market. It's going to start affecting all asset markets, including bond markets and even property and other illiquid assets as well. What, What sort of technologies, what changes are you talking about? What's happened in the stock market over the past, you know, 
pretty much 50 years is that the rise of computers um, led to electronic trading. That eventually led bid-ask spreads, frictions in markets to come down, which allowed more market participants to pile in. And that process was also helped along by the the invention of index funds, um, that low-cost way of accessing markets. And now you have all of this direct access because it's become so inexpensive to trade shares that even retail investors can do it for for basically free. Um, The second is that there are now new ways of gathering information, new information flows um, that are more heavily influenced by social media. And the third is the disintermediation of Wall Street institutions. For example, Robinhood is a California-based brokerage. Um, It routes a lot of its trading through Citadel Securities, which is a market maker based in Chicago. So there are these three dynamics that seem to be influencing markets in a way that they haven't been affected before. So where would you put this in the, in the history of disruptive technologies? I mean, how big a deal is this? For basically as long as markets have existed, new technologies have changed the way that they act and behave. So for example, if you look at 19th century wheat markets in America, you know, there used to be these markets where buyers would travel from farm to farm and collect samples, and then they would sort of make a deal with an individual farmer. That changed when the railways came. Railways forced farmers to sort of standardise their grains so that they could be transported more easily in these sort of big grain silos. And that fostered the founding of the commodity exchanges. Um, In 1848, the Chicago Commodity Exchange was founded. And this process was so successful that the word commodify is now basically synonymous with standardisation today. Uh, Another example is in the 1980s, there was a a boom in securitisation of mortgage debt and other assets. And that took mortgage debt from something that, you know, used to be just held on bank balance sheets as an asset into something that was sort of a readily traded security that investors hold. So this kind of mass participation, thanks to technological disruption, we're already seeing it in the stock market, in in some metals market like, like silver. Are we also beginning to see it elsewhere in the property market, for example? I think the sort of most obvious candidate for that is the bond market. So right now, the bond market still trades kind of like the equity market did maybe 30 years ago. You know, there's sort of relatively little electronic trading and most of the flow goes through the big banks. But that's starting to change. And it changed very significantly in 2020, thanks to the pandemic. New bond trading firms like Market Access, which is a big electronic bond trading firm, introduced the capability of all-to-all trading so that all participants can trade with everybody else, like you do on an exchange. And that accounted for about a quarter of the transactions that they facilitated before March 2020. But that shared up to a third post-pandemic. Those kinds of developments are what happened in stock markets 30 years ago. And they're a precursor potentially to the bond market becoming as electronic, as sort of frictionless and and cheap to trade in as the equity market currently is. The property market is sort of much, much more liquid and sort of much further off, but you're seeing seeds of the same shift there as well. Um, So for example, there are sort of a host of startup firms who have built these platforms where they say what they're doing is listing commercial real estate projects as if they are, you know, IPOing them basically and selling off shares to groups of investors. And their goal is to sort of make those platforms a place where you can sort of trade in and out of those investments the same way you can with shares, create a liquid market for property investments. But we should be cheering all this, shouldn't we? It's a a big democratisation of the financial markets, a, a, a big step forward for the little man. Precisely, yeah. I think in in general, 
the rise of index funds, the, the driving down of costs of, of trading, the fact that this you know, is probably likely to roll through bond markets and property markets and other places where it's very expensive to get exposure to these assets. They're traditionally only the preserve of the rich or big institutional investors. You know, all of these things have created sort of enormous savings and great value for investors in the stock market and in general should be sort of supported and cheered along. But it, it is hard in the context of what's happened with GameStop and other shares um, over the past couple of weeks to not see some of the perils as well. You know, this rise in speculation um, will probably have costs. Some of these retail investors are likely to make losses. Um, it causes the mispricing of uh, securities and sort of potentially strains some of the underlying market infrastructure. It's also become a political football. There's been this howl, predictably, for government intervention, taxes on financial transactions, etc. And I think it's important to understand how we got here and how important these developments are. Do you think regulators should step in? And, and if so, how? People should be allowed to speculate and those investors should should bear their losses. You know, you, you lose, you learn. Um, that's sort of the, the, the rule in financial markets. Uh, one thing that regulators definitely should do, though, is sort of make sure that the market infrastructure is robust. So a brokerage like Robinhood that saw enormous activity in GameStop on its platform, it was responsible for a huge amount of capital. You know, they came out and said um, that they had to sum up about $3 billion to their clearinghouse. And in order to do that, they had to raise more capital from investors. They had to run down their credit lines at banks. You know, there are ways that you could finesse that process and make it so that there wasn't such a big mismatch. Regulators should also sort of discourage the the harassment of short sellers. They do play a very important role in capital markets and they have been villainized over the past two weeks, but they aren't always the villains. I guess my, my last point would be that it would be best to sort of try and keep politics out of it as, as much as we can. Um, a lot of appointments to regulatory bodies and, and institutions um, in America have become very politicised by populist uprisings or whatever you want to call this. And um, it would be a shame if sort of market regulators were to go the same way. Alice Forward, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. To find out more about the digital transformation rippling through the financial system, go to economist.com. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And you can find the link in the notes for this episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. As Alice explained, one traditionally illiquid market ripe for disruption is property. Real estate is the biggest asset market in the world and the biggest property market of all is in China. At over $50 trillion, it rivals the total value of all American companies, public and private. And it's enjoying an extraordinary boom. 
China is investing more in real estate than America did before the financial crisis. But how long can it last? Lottery winners normally win money. In China, the big prize is being allowed to spend it. Simon Rabinovich is the Economist Asia Economics editor. Yang Yang has been house hunting in Hangzhou. It's an ancient capital in the delta of the Yangtze River, better known today as a booming tech hub. Thirty-eight years old, he was looking for a bigger home. He wanted to have space for a playroom for his little girl. But in China's biggest booming coastal cities, finding your dream house is not so simple. Demand for new homes in good locations is so high, supply so limited, that several cities, Hangzhou included, use lotteries to allocate them. Sometimes the odds are as low as one in sixty. Mr. Young lost out in three different draws before finally winning one last spring. When his number came up, he had three minutes to decide whether he wanted to sink his savings, nearly two million dollars, in the house. <laughs> he said he couldn't hesitate for a moment to think about the layout or the exact quality of the place. He just had to go for it. He joked that it was even more nerve-wracking than his university entrance exams. <laughs> Simon, that's an extraordinary story for anyone not familiar with the Chinese housing market. So tell me about it. I mean, how big is this boom in housing? How long has it been going on? Well, it is hands down the world's biggest property market.、Uh, every year,、uh, China builds roughly 15 million new homes. That's five times as many、uh, as in America and Europe combined. Now, one, one reason for that is that the property market in China. Is relatively young. It was only in the late 1990s、uh, that property was actually privatized. So there's there's an awful amount of catch-up growth that's taking place. But as the case of Yangyang shows,、uh, in some cities the demand is so high, and in fact the supply is so limited that city governments have taken to restricting sales by lotteries. Basically, by luck you get your lot called, and if it is called. You have a chance to to buy a home. Otherwise, there's no way to buy an, a new home in those cities. But that's not all across China, is it? I mean, you you hear these stories of、uh, ghost cities, of forests, of empty apartment blocks. Certainly, yeah. And several years ago, there were many, many stories about these ghost cities, ghost developments that were being、uh, built up. A lot of them have filled in. Uh, some of them haven't, and so there there really is an imbalance in in the property supply. So, outside of China, people talk about it as being this one massive nationwide property bubble. In China, I think the way that people often look at it is as a misallocation, if you will. And that、uh, there's some places where it's really quite extreme. There's one one town that became quite famous a couple of years ago, the city of Hugang, up on the border with Russia in the northeast. Homes there were being advertised for as little as twenty thousand RMB. That's roughly three thousand dollars. That's less than the cost of a square meter in Shanghai. So that's that's just really an extreme example. But it is the case generally that in small towns, homes are much much cheaper and much much more available with much less demand、uh, than what you have in in any of the big cities. 
A lot of the conversation about China's economy seems to concentrate on industry, on manufacturing, on infrastructure, on exports. But it sounds as if property is just as important to the economy as a whole. Well, I mean, you might even say that that is more important. So if you look at the direct impact of property investment, you know, the actual construction spending every year, uh, that's about 10% of GDP. But if you look at all the other indirect implications, you know, what that means for steel production, uh, all the follow-on purchases of, uh, you know, furniture and curtains and flooring and televisions and fridges, etc., it works out to about 25% of China's GDP financially the implications are also vast. Roughly uh, $100 billion in bonds uh, issued by Chinese real estate developers will come due over the next year. Globally, if you look at all bank loans outstanding, roughly one-tenth are loans that are tied to the Chinese property sector, either in terms of uh, mortgages or loans to China's real estate developers. So it's a huge market. The divergence that I laid out, you might say that that's very similar to what you see in property markets around the world. Nevertheless, the degree of the divergence in China is so much more extreme and the size of the property market is so much bigger. The growth is so much faster that that trying to understand exactly what is happening is much more consequential for the global economy. But is that size of market, that speed of growth and that inequality sustainable? Well, certainly a commonly heard view is that it all adds up to a ticking time bomb. You know, surveys have been done to indicate that as much as 20%, one in five homes uh, are vacant, debt has increased quite substantially over the last decade. The biggest property developer in China, a company called Evergrande, it owes roughly $120 billion. Its debt load has increased by nearly 60-fold in the past decade alone. These are the concerns. I think it is fair to say, though, that these concerns aren't particularly new. You can go back to, you know, as early as 2009, after the global financial crisis, when China had a big, big stimulus. You had hedge fund managers globally you know, saying that China looked extremely dangerous. Jim Chanos, uh, quite a well-known short seller, said that China was uh, Dubai on steroids. Since then, though, property prices have in fact doubled. There's much greater complexity to the market than I think those early characterizations of it as just a simple bubble. To the outsider, some of those doomster arguments have a sort of simplistic appeal. I mean, how, how do you explain the success of the market? I mean, I think you can look at it in two dimensions. So one is just there's demand for the housing that's being built. You know, as we've laid out in the big cities, there's excess demand. So you've got the market on one side. The other big element is is the regulatory framework that's been developed. And the government is very, very conscious of the fact that, you know, there are concerns about excess development, about the money pouring into the market, about the buildup of mortgages. And so you've seen lots and lots of measures that have been taken over the years to try to stabilize the market. One of the most basic ones uh, is that, you know, if you obtain a mortgage, you've got to pay at least 30% of the purchase price as a down payment. If it's your second home, the required down payment is higher than 70%. That risk of kind of zero down payment mortgages, which is one of the big problems, of course, in 2008 globally, is not something that you have in China. In fact, almost every month you have new measures that are released, one kind of rule on top of another rule uh, that can make it quite a headache for people who are trying to buy homes in China. But I think over the course of time, you have to say have been you know, absolutely integral to to stopping the market from, from, from blowing up into a true bubble. 
But presumably, Simon, these layers and layers of new regulations are going to have long-term consequences on the market. Indeed, and they've actually done a fairly good job of controlling price increases. If you look at the last three or four years, prices have been basically stable, but demand has been so strong that it's simply being unmet. And so you've got some bizarre things in the market, you know, such as the price controls are primarily aimed at new homes. Uh, but if you were to buy a home secondhand, you know, theoretically, especially in China, that home will be worse than the new home because it will have been built earlier, lived in, lower quality. But the prices for the secondhand homes, which are not as tightly controlled, can be as much as 30% higher than for the new homes. So it is a distorted market. What the government is trying to do right now is to add kind of one more layer of distortion, which which may actually prove to be a, a more fundamental solution. So they're building up high-speed rail networks that connect everything quite quickly and quite seamlessly. They're making it easier for people to buy homes that are going to be in suburbs, in commuter towns, connected to places like Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing. That is the game plan, basically, is to try to skim some of the demand away from the biggest cities. It's not the easiest thing to do. Nevertheless, you can see that this is where a lot of property developers now are concentrating their investment. And also, you can see that the prices in these second and third tier cities have begun to catch up to a greater extent. So there is there is potentially an off-ramp for China from all of the different distortions that have been accumulated over the years. Simon Rubinovich, thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. And finally, Andrew Carnegie, the 19th century billionaire industrialist, and at one time the world's richest man, is said to have asserted that 90% of all millionaires became so through owning real estate. Today, even if it doesn't make you a millionaire, property is generally assumed to be a sound investment. But a closer look at the data over the long haul suggests property may be far less attractive than many would-be moguls might expect. There's not been, until quite recently, systematic studies of how particularly domestic property stacks up against you know, stocks and bonds over the long term. John O'Sullivan is our markets columnist, also known as Buttonwood. But there was a, a really ambitious magisterial paper called The Rate of Return on Everything, which was published last year in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. And it looked at returns from 1870 to 2015 on, on everything, on stocks, bonds, but also housing. And that's really where the innovation was. Over 16 developed countries, rich countries, as we call them at The Economist. And the finding was that housing, in terms of returns did at least as well, probably a bit better than stocks over the very long pool, giving you a compound return of about 4.7% a year. Now, obviously, that varies by country. I think Australia did particularly well, housing particularly well, Britain, not so great. And a lot of the return comes not from capital appreciation, your house price going up, but from the rental yield. So this seemed to verify the sort of colloquial wisdom. Uh, they made lots of qualifications. The data are obviously pretty patchy the further back you go. But as best as we can tell, the returns on housing are pretty high over the long run. But that view has been challenged. Yes, I think a lot of people were surprised by it. Measuring returns on housing is a much more difficult undertaking than it is measuring returns on, on stocks and bonds. The big problem is that housing doesn't trade much. 
I mean, only what, five, six, seven percent of the, the housing stock turns over in any given year. So you don't have great price data from one year to the next to say the value of the housing stock's gone up by X percent with any real confidence. That's the first problem. The second problem is your sample of housing may not be representative. You take the S&P 500 leading stocks and you say that pretty much represents the, the stock of, of equity wealth. You know, it counts for about 85-90% of US equity wealth, for example. Uh, it's much harder to get a representative sample of, of, of housing data, partly because they don't trade that often. And the third thing is that you have to be careful about what it is you're measuring. If a lot of two-bedroom flats were selling last year and this year it's a bunch of five-bedroom houses, you're comparing apples and oranges. So quality adjusting and mix adjusting is a very, very tricky problem. And the further back you go, the less likely it is that statisticians have made the effort to do that. So it sounds as if what you're saying, John, is that basically it's unknowable whether property is a good investment compared with others or or, or not? Or are there serious attempts to get to the bottom of this? Well, it's uncertain. It's certainly less certain than the sort of data we have on, on stocks and bonds and so on. And that's where I think a forthcoming paper in the Review of Financial Studies by David Chambers and two co-authors tries to basically adjust for these problems over the very long run. The difficulty you have is finding a consistent series of data over the best part of a century. And what these authors have done is looked at the property holdings of endowment funds at four Oxbridge colleges. These are endowment funds that have been investing in property for really for centuries. And they've got lots of detailed data on sales and purchases, very detailed data on rental income, They've got rent books and also very detailed data on the cost of maintenance of these properties, which is something that generally in the in the sort of pub conversations you have about housing being a great investment is often left out. You have to spend quite a lot of money on a house for its upkeep. So what they're able to do is do a quality adjustment over the very long term in a way that's not really possible looking at the top-down figures, particularly in in Britain, but also in many other countries. They're looking at consistent data. They're also able to look at rental income and say what the effect is of when the properties are empty or when the money just doesn't come in, where you have uh, uh, rental holidays, as we've had in a lot of places recently, but also as happened during the Second World War. And what did they find? I mean, how did their answer compare with that in the rate of return on everything? It's very different. This data set runs from about 1901 to the early 1980s. And it finds that in Britain, which is obviously British properties in in this particular data set, the returns on property are around about 2.3% compared to 4.7%. So it's considerably less. So what explains the discrepancy between the two studies? Well, you've got two possible explanations. And we're back to this issue about is your sample representative? You could say, well... These guys just didn't invest very well. We can never entirely rule that out. But I think the evidence suggests that all of these endowment funds, their their property holdings were invested on a very professional basis. They were relatively well spread across the country regionally and in terms of different types of property. The alternative explanation is that this consistent data set might be a bit closer to the truth than the the sort of top-down numbers that we got from the the QJE paper. So um, what's the answer to to the the bloke in the pub who says, well, property's always a good investment? You say, nah, buy GameStop shares, buy fine art, 
by postage stamps? Well, there's, there's two or three things you have to, to, to bear in mind, I think, with property. The first thing is it's very easy to forget about the cost side of it. If you properly costed all the effort you put into your DIY, for example, um, you would have to take that away from some measure of returns. In the stock market, the returns you get are net of the expenditure that company managements have to put in to maintain the company and to, to generate its earnings. The Oxbridge study, the cost of maintenance is put at something like 30%. The second thing to bear in mind is that when you look at long term house price indices, they probably do not adequately adjust for the fact that the quality of the housing stock is going up over time. So what you're measuring is an improvement in quality and not an improvement in return. So bear that in mind when you're you're looking at historical studies. And the third thing is that housing is very idiosyncratic. It's actually much harder to get the average performance, whatever that is, of the housing stock. You can't buy an index of houses in a way you can buy an index of stocks. So the property that you buy, there's always going to be a risk that it turns out to be a duffer one than the average. So you have to bear that risk in mind when you're thinking about comparing housing returns to investment returns on stocks and bonds. John O'Sullivan, thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate us, or better yet, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us immensely. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.